0: We're in a series, The Recovery of Lost Joy. This is part seven. The title for tonight's teaching is A Plea for Disciplined Living. And the text is a pretty well-known text in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. 2 Peter 1, 5, 6, 7, and 8. And the apostle writes, And says this, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And I'm going to look at what this reason is in a minute. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self control, self control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. Notice, there's there's two qualifications in that sentence. If these qualities are yours, if this is how you live, that's one qualification. There's another, that these things have to be increasing. And you, and you get this feeling right off the bat that what Peter's talking about Isn't a life that I'm a pagan, I'm a pagan, I'm a pagan, I'm a pagan, and I got saved. Praise God. I'm a Christian. It's going to be great when Jesus comes back. I have eternal life. That thinking gets carried into a lot of churches. So it's these qualities are yours, and then from this point on, here's how you know if you really possess these qualities. (laughs) because the way they work is they just gain momentum the longer they're in you. So there's nothing in the Christian life that comes to a a period. There, I got saved. Praise God. Everything in the Christian life is designed to be... Conversion is like, I don't watch it much, but when you see like the Kentucky Derby or something like that, conversion, conversion isn't the destination. Conversion is the opening of the starting gate. Boom! Everything has to grow until Jesus comes back. Everything expands. Everything gets hotter, not cooler. Deeper, not shallower. livelier, not gentler. That's the way he describes it, gives these lists of qualities. So the subject, the recovery of lost joy, has a lot to do with the kind of understanding you have of the Christian life. If If you got saved and started resting... You're going to be a pathetic picture of new life in Christ to this watching world. Peter writes to people who are, well, they're in the throes of persecution. We know that because the whole letter talks about it. They've been feeling the heat of battle, they're saved, but they might be growing a bit tired. Uh, sometimes persecution. You get enough people doubting your salvation. You know what happens? You start to doubt it. That happens. Bright, intelligent people aren't following Jesus. I am. What am I missing? And so they're feeling the weight of this. Perhaps even, you don't want to say second-guessing, maybe just on the edges of starting to deconstruct. It really isn't new. as they examine their faith. Look at the middle of verse 7. Peter says, something is needed to keep these people from becoming, here's the words, ineffective, verse 7, and unfruitful. If you have the old King James, it's barren and unfruitful. So that that picture of fruitful versus unfruitful is really insightful, and and it relates to what I said at the beginning, all these things like out of the starting gate. That's what conversion is, the starting gate. Because you know how fruit works. It, it multiplies. That's the nature of fruit. A farmer, if he just gets back exactly what he puts in the ground, there's no money in that. He counts on everything multiplying. That's what makes the whole thing work. So that's the picture he paints. The life you possess in Jesus is one that you hold and you find, verse 8, increasing is the word. It is not depleted with the passing of time. That's the picture Peter paints of New Testament Christianity. Just as the harvest, wheat or oats or barley or whatever it is, it's greater than the amount of seed you put in the ground. The life and power of the gospel multiplies, expands, increases in its influence over our hearts. So, point number one, if that's true, what, what can cause this unfruitfulness, this depletion of spiritual strength? And Peter is going to deal with two causes in our text tonight. First, or A, Cause number one a misunderstanding of the nature of the Christian faith do you see verse five and for this very reason make every effort there's the words make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and with virtue knowledge and he's going to go on the list but but what interests me is there's this Effort word. I mean, I thought faith is the opposite of works. You're not justified by works. You're justified by faith, apart from works, and yet make every effort in your faith. And you feel like saying, well, which is it? And the answer is yes. Faith has to be supplemented. Peter says it has to be added to. It's not something that stands long all by itself. While nothing can ever be added, listen, nothing can ever be added to the faith once delivered, the body of truth that we believe. We must, I must constantly add to my faith, my personal faith in that revealed truth. Let me just talk for a minute. This isn't in your notes. The power of trust is not automatic. It is not simple in this kind of world. And it is not self-sustaining. The power of trust is not automatic, not simple, and not self-sustaining. This whole movement of deconstructionism, it really shouldn't surprise anybody Listen to these verses. Again, this isn't in your notes. Here's Jesus. He looks down the road, and he sees people like us getting closer and closer to the last days. So what's that going to be like? Tell me if this sounds at all familiar to you. Matthew twenty four, ten. Then many will fall away. Betray one another, hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will many, many will grow cold. These aren't people who never had love. Many, they're going to be led astray, Fall away, led astray. Love grow cold. Jesus says, as the days progress toward the last days, please don't be surprised if you see this happening in great numbers, Jesus says. And yet we are surprised, almost shocked. Or how's this one? Jesus, speaking with a heavy heart, and he asks a question. And he says, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on earth? Look it up. It's in your New Testament. All of that to say, what we're looking at, what what Peter's talking about is highly relevant in this kind of a mixture of end-time disaster and the warnings of the rest of the New Testament. Confusion needs to be cleared away. Peter says we have to supplement our faith. And when he says that, he does not mean ever that we're justified by anything other than faith alone. He doesn't mean adding works to our faith in order to be saved. What he does mean is this world in which we all live as Christians, it aggressively wars against simple trust in Jesus Christ. Satan hates that. Simple trust in Jesus Christ alone as my ultimate treasure, my ultimate joy, my ultimate security, it takes constant effort for Don Horbin to keep his trust in Jesus Christ alone. It does for you too. It does for you too. Is it easy or is it hard to believe in Jesus? The answer is yes. In a sense, there's nothing easier in all the world. We're justified by faith alone, without any addition of human sacrifice and work. All one has to do, however mixed up, however dirty the past, whatever problems, all one has to do is come and trust the Savior. But there are things that are easy in themselves that are difficult due to the situation in the world, the situation in our fallen hearts. Do you remember the Old Testament story of Naaman? If I say that name, how many, I got the story you're talking about? Some. He had leprosy. He's a king. And the prophet of God told him that God would heal him if he would go down into that muddy Jordan River, king, and dunk himself Seven times. And Naaman almost couldn't do it. Almost couldn't. Is it easy or is it hard? Well, it's not hard. A four-year-old could do it, but it's hard. It's hard for a proud king. There's something in the fallen heart that makes simple repentance and humility an ongoing trust in Jesus Christ alone, a very difficult thing in this kind of world. That's the battle of faith in this world. There are tremendous provisions. Look at them. They're in 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. Here's the provision. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Wow by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Listen, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Everything necessary is provided. It's free. I don't achieve my standing by my works, but that doesn't mean I don't work. My trust is in Jesus. I do rest in his love and finished work on the cross and divine promise. But there's a view of faith that I'm going to show you. There's a view of faith that the whole New Testament argues against that is very commonly held. It's become common in much of the church today. And it's kind of what I'm calling the automatic view of faith. It's the idea that faith is just this one-time you say the right words, you place your trust in Christ there. And the idea is that from that point on, the power of Jesus, and there is such a thing as the power of Jesus by his spirit, but the idea that that power works automatically in my life without me worrying much about it at all. It doesn't. It doesn't. Christian life isn't something that just happens to you. It, it, it doesn't quite work. You just decide for Jesus and then have the rest of your Christian life just creep over you like a virus. In other words, many people suffer from spiritual weariness, lack of joy because they expect faith to accomplish in their hearts that it was never designed to to accomplish in the first place. Faith is not self-sustaining, not self-propagating. It needs to be supplemented. There's another area related to this. I said there were two things. B, it relates to the point I just made, but it's a little different. A Lack of diligence and discipline. I said I was going to show you the the way the New Testament talks about faith. I'm do you have those three references? I mean, I could have put 15, but three does everything. For this very reason, 2 Peter 1.5, make every effort to supplement your faith. You do this. This isn't, this isn't something God does. Do you see that? You make every effort. That's what Peter's saying. He's talking about my effort. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge. I could have kept reading. 2 Peter 1.10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Diligent. That's a will thing, right? Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice, that's, that's a human thing too. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who Seek him. There's Again, that's a human response thing, seeking him. Every once in a while, you've seen it, someone will fall badly in the body of Christ and maybe become engaged in actions that kind of leave everybody else just gasping. How, how, could, how could they do something like that? How could a person become so blind? Those are the questions we ask. And then they'll say something like this. I don't understand how he could do that. Look at, the way, look at the way he was raised. Look how long they've been in the church. How could this happen to him? But you see, it's a misunderstanding. How they were raised, that's just their bare environment. It has little to do with the choices they make to maintain and discipline their Christian walk. Paul warned Timothy that in the last times, perilous times, he said, would come upon the church. And I've had to do a real turnaround, a real shift in my thinking when I read that. I used to think of them somehow related to the future. Antichrist, Armageddon, the mark of the beast, all that stuff. The times are perilous because people... Here's why they're perilous. In mass, people in the church will start to love what pleases them more than what's right and true and what God says. The church, I don't mean this church, I mean the church, it'll become selective in what it wants to take from the hand of God. And so that kind of discipline is going to be replaced by a sort of, he talks about people with itching ears and they want to be scratched. (laughs) Quite a picture. People will have a buffet approach. They'll pick and choose what they want to hear. And if this church doesn't give it to me, well, there's a whole bunch of other churches. And I'll just find one that does. So we're to add certain things. It takes discipline. That's the point I just made. Faith is like the conversion is the starting gate where everything grows and it's supposed to increase, but it doesn't increase all by itself. It increases with discipline. Peter says there are things we add, certain things to our faith. Look at verses 5, 6, and 7 of 2 Peter chapter 1. I'll try and go through these fairly quickly. For this very reason, make every effort, there it is, to supplement your faith, there it is, with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Let's just look at them, virtue. If I was to simplify everything you have in your notes, and that's what I'm going to try and do. Virtue is, it's another V word, virtue is valuing purity. It's not just being pure. Virtue is valuing purity. Valuing uprightness. Seeing the superior worth of holiness. And I just want to say that the media works to destroy the purity instinct. Major networks have no interest in building virtue in their viewers. We need to think about that. We need to think about that. Virtue is wanting the divine nature more than I want anything else. You'll notice in Second Peter 1.3, Peter writes and says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. So here it is. Jesus has called you, me, to his own glory and his own excellence. So, so he's uttered this marvelous call. But divine help doesn't come the way Tooth fairy comes and puts a quarter under your pillow, probably a loony now at night. Divine help comes to people who are virtuous, who love the divine nature more than they love anything else. That's how they supplement faith. be knowledge. It is getting harder and harder for the Christian mind to yield to divine revelation when the culture so obviously rejects any kind of absolute truth. Here's a precious promise. Psalm 119, 130. Psalmist writes, and he says, "The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple." Notice that word "unfolding." The unfolding of your words. It's it's a unfolding is a, a way of showing a gradual process where you start like this and you open it up and you see more and you see more and you see more. It's this. Careful process of handling the word with real care and precision. Unfolding truth, it's like the way your computer stores files. And your mind, it's it's storing and filing and keeping to unfold truth from God's word. The basic difference between a Christian mind and a non-Christian mind. Here it is. The Christian mind is governed by divine revelation. The pagan mind is guided by relative truth, not right and wrong, but what's socially acceptable and not socially acceptable. The Christian mind with divine revelation deals with right and wrong, absolute right and wrong, truth and falsehood. The secular mind deals with doesn't deal with right and wrong. It just deals with social and antisocial. There are things that were totally, I'm not talking about in the church. I'm talking about in the culture at large. There were things that were totally unacceptable 50 years ago. And they're totally acceptable now. Well, you're not talking right and wrong there. You're talking about social and antisocial. That's the only measuring stick. The difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is, The Christian mind works with revealed truth. It's not even do I like everything God says. I just know when God says it, it's the way it is. And I have to accept it and yield to it and bow to it. The word reveals things about my own heart that I don't like to see revealed. But it's true because God says it. Knowledge, knowledge of the word. Yield to what God says. Embrace what God says. Cling to what God says above all else. Oh boy, I like to say so much more there. See, self-control. Earlier in his letter, Peter tells us why the world is in such a mess. But you will never see in any election, any political campaign, you won't see this issue talked about. 2 Peter 1.4, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from, and I've underlined, the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. No wonder, add to your faith self-control, Just putting faith in Jesus Christ doesn't automatically mean that all the other desires disappear from your heart. You're going to have to deal with those, Peter says, self-control. Our lusts, we think of it as sexual things. The Bible uses that just in terms of fallen desire, all of it. Cause everything to go bad. They cause life to go sour and stale What Peter is teaching is just so basic to fruitfulness and joy in following Jesus. If you think you will find spiritual life just because you signed a decision card, or were raised in a Christian home, or are a member in a church, Peter says it's going to escape you, there's another part of the story. If you read the Puritans, if you've read, I like to read a lot of older books, and you'll find a subject that's dealt with, in a word that you won't find in any modern book on the Christian life. If you stop and read any of the Puritans, you'll find they talk about an M word, mortification. They have, they have chapters in books for new converts on how to mortify fallen desires. You know what they're talking about. You, you need... You need to learn to kill bad desires. You you need to put certain things to death. Here's how Jesus talked about it. Any of you? Picture Jesus. Any of you want to follow me? Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. It's in there, the D word. Take up his cross daily. What is Jesus talking about? If I'm gonna follow Jesus, and I do want to follow Jesus. Don't you? You want to follow Jesus? So so there's a D word every day. Tomorrow, you're gonna get out of bed. There's self-crucifixion that's required. Why is that? I'm a Christian, I love Jesus because there's a part of me that is still attracted to the wrong things. I have my own pride, I have my own ego. And that will steer my life in certain directions. And if I try to follow Jesus without dealing with these things, self-control, it's not going to work. Notice, Jesus doesn't say the Holy Spirit puts all these things to death for me. That's the part I have to do. There is new life that will come in and fill. And it will fill the parts that I put to death. So he says, self-control, it's just absolutely essential. I had written in my notes. It's not in yours. Don't trust any desire of your heart unless you study the Bible 30 minutes a day. Don't trust any desire from your heart unless you read your Bible 30 minutes a day. D, steadfastness. Any commitment that I make to Jesus is going to be tried and it's going to be tested. It's not a game. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 and 58. But thanks be to God who gives us, look at, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, there you go, Pastor Don. That's what I want. Here, he gives us the victory. What are you talking about? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Find something to do in your local church. That's what he's saying. Abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I'm just struck with the way Paul calls these Christians to be steadfast, and immovable, right after he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the only conceivable reason is Paul knows there'll be times, whole seasons, where it's not gonna look like Christ has given you the victory. There'll be times when you won't feel like you're victorious, So he says these people must be ready to push into this victory in Christ. It's free, but much has to be resisted in this fallen fallen world. Are you steadfast in your faith, immovable? E, godliness. This has to be added. A big part of supplementing my faith, is learning to see all of life related to God himself. Life is visible. I can see you, you can see me. God is invisible. That's a problem. It's a problem because, so Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. He's not just talking about saying grace before meals. He's talking about bringing a, a God consciousness into the things you do. And what makes that hard for most of us is the ordinary way our days seem to follow one upon the other with stuff we see and do and work at and we learn how to do it and you can do a lot of it without thinking and then the next day is going to be basically the same and the next day is going to be basically the same. You just get into your routine. That makes it hard to concentrate on God. Let me give you proof. Tell me, well, don't tell me. You, uh, You can ask yourself. If you ever had this experience, you watch a show, you thought, that is really good. There's not much good stuff on TV. This is good. You have some friends over. There you sit with your popcorn. You're sitting around the TV, and you're watching it. And you said, you know what? Rini and I just found this show. It's. it's I think you're really going to like it. So, boom, off it goes. Ooh, I never noticed that. Ugh. That language. What? I didn't see that. And then you start watching it, and you see. Oh, I didn't, wow. And there's something about watching a program with another group of Christians that makes you see things that you didn't see when you watched it by yourself. You don't have to admit it, but nod if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, we've all been there. Sorry, I I, I don't know how I missed that the first time. I'll tell you how you missed it the first time. Same way I missed it the first time. It's Because when I'm sitting there and watching it with, Sam and Martha. I'm thinking about them while I watch the movie. But I wasn't thinking about Jesus being with me when I watched it the first time. Do you get what I'm saying? Why? Well, I can see Sam and Martha can't see Jesus. That's what makes it hard to bring God into all the things that you do. But honestly, how ask yourself, how much TV could you safely watch if Jesus of Nazareth with his sandals and his beard was sitting in the lazy boy and you could see him, right? there how much tv would you actually watch i'm guessing not much (laughs) that's what i'm guessing it's bringing it to bear bringing god into the situation being aware of it okay I'm, i'm taking too long brotherly affection and love has to be added one of the greatest enemies to the life of faith isn't that i start denying the resurrection of jesus from the dead isn't that I don't believe in the Trinity. What is likely to mess up my spiritual walk is I'm going to get mad at what somebody did to me. I will go a long way to supplementing my faith if I can just learn to regulate my attitudes and actions toward others. Do you have Ephesians 4, 30 and 32 in your notes? All right. Just for a second, stand up with me, would you? This is going to be one of the most important things you do today. Do you see it? Those words? With your brain active, let's read together. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another Tender hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Is that not a mouthful? You can be seated. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. I've often thought about exactly what we are to be remembering when we come to the Lord's table. And I don't think it's just a matter of reliving the cross experience, how much physical pain was involved, how much blood was shed, etc. Other people have been executed in painful ways, too. I think what's supposed to happen, the kind of remembering, you come to the Lord's table. And he speaks and says, Don, you really need to forgive so and so. And you need to go and apologize. And Don would say, Apologize. But it's, no, no, it was his fault. And then Jesus speaks to Don and he says, Yeah, and when I died on the cross, it was all your fault. Forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. And everybody said, ouch. Yeah. Don't say amen. Say ouch. <laughs> That's what a verse. Here's how Don, here's how my grace comes. How, how does yours get extended? That's another way Peter says, by the way, tuck that into that baggage called faith. Put that in the box. That has to go in there too. You supplement it with all of those things.